You're probably thinking I'm making up this term, high convexity tight sulci. It sounds intimidating. So many consonants. But really there's not much to it. High convexity tight sulci is a relatively novel imaging biomarker in normal pressure hydrocephalus, and it's very often ignored or missed. I wish I could show it to you, but this is just an audio podcast. We used to have a more active Instagram profile, as one of our listeners pointed out to me recently. Sorry, Catherine, but it's just too much to manage all these social media accounts. I don't know how everyone else does it. Instead, to all the listeners out there, you'll just have to take a look at a representative image from Narita and colleagues published in AJNR from 2016. We've modified a version of this graphic for our Twitter feed, and it was posted at the time of this episode release. And because this is such a simple concept, and because I want you to read more up on it on your own, today's program is going to be pretty short. So let's get to it. High convexity sulcal tightness. Probably one of the strongest radiographic predictors of NPH, and a specific differentiator of other dementia syndromes. Here we go. I think the best way to visualize high convexity tight sulci is on the coronal views of any T1 or T2 sequence. Imagine the parasagittal frontal gyri kissing each other. There's no space for the CSF. But all the remaining lateral, frontal, and temporal lobe sulci have disproportionately enlarged subarachnoid spaces, which is really not all that different from what we see in Alzheimer's disease or other dementia syndromes. Take a minute if you can to Google it, and you'll find a few articles by several Japanese groups led by Narita, Kitagaki, and Shinoda. But I'd recommend that you start with the Radiopedia.org article on NPH. You can also learn more about NPH from a prior show we did in November 2018, episode 125, No Pressure. commonly, patients present to the outpatient clinic with a gait disturbance, the wobbly part of the three Ws. And they'll probably not have if this show interests you, I'd recommend you check out that earlier program so you can have a fuller understanding of NPH and the controversies that underlie this diagnosis. Fifty years later, we still don't know what causes it. So, on to this high-convexity tight sulci finding. I probably misled you at the opening of the show when I said that high-convexity tightness is a novel imaging biomarker. It's technically an older concept, dating back to 1998, where it remained relatively hidden from the published literature for nearly two decades. In a case control cohort of 33 patients, 11 of whom had shunt-responsive idiopathic NPH, 11 patients with Alzheimer's disease, and 11 who had vascular dementia, the investigators evaluated four CSF compartments for predictors of shunt-responsiveness. In that study, Kitagaki and colleagues found a disproportionate enlargement of the lateral ventricles, which was to be expected with a significant loss of subarachnoid space in the superior convexity. There was just excess crowding of the gyri. As in other dementia syndromes, such as Alzheimer's disease and severe microvascular disease, the temporal and lateral frontal lobe sulci and the sylvian fissure were enlarged in patients who had NPH. But the high convexity CSF space in NPH was less apparent than in these other conditions. Unfortunately, the inter-rater reliability of grading that superior convexity CSF volume was poor, so the authors concluded that it was not a very reliable indicator of NPH. Since that publication, the Japanese Society of Normal Pressure Hydrocephalus incorporated high-convexity tight sulci as a criterion for possible NPH in 2004, and the finding has been validated in several studies with a higher degree of inter-rater reliability since. Furthermore, at the core of the diagnostic criteria for NPH, shunt responsiveness, patients who had clinically diagnosed NPH and high-convexity tight sulci, these are the patients who demonstrate clinical responsiveness to ventricular peritoneal shunting. 
and one 2016 observational study of 60 patients with NPH who underwent VP shunt placement. Narita and colleagues evaluated the association of pre-surgical imaging features and the long-term clinical benefit to shunting. Traditional features were included in their analysis, as expected. Evans index, which is the relative diameter of the lateral ventricles in reference to the diameter of the inner table of the skull. Sylvian fissure enlargement. Colossal angle, which is a measurement of how flat the vertical most portion of the lateral ventricles are. You'll just have to look up some of these terms on your own time. So the investigators looked at these radiographic features that we see in NPH, and in unadjusted analysis, the sylvian fissure dilation, colossal angle, and tightness of the high convexity were all associated with clinical improvement using the NPH grading scale. After multivariable adjustment, only high convexity tightness predicted overall improvement in the NPH grading scale, and it predicted improvement in the GATE subscore. So even more so than the Evans index, which is what I've historically referenced on rounds, this singular imaging abnormality is probably the most useful radiographic biomarker for NPH. These observational cohort studies were recently followed up by an important paper that was published in the Green Journal last year, Neurology. In an attempt to better characterize which patients with cognitive impairment and disproportionately enlarged subarachnoid space hydrocephalus a condition that we now call DESH, D-E-S-H. Graf Radford and his team followed patients with structural MRI, as well as amyloid and tau PET imaging. What they found was that, in cognitively impaired patients who had high-convexity tight sulci, the overall cortical thickness is consistent with what's been seen in Alzheimer's disease. However, despite that cortical volume loss, the tau uptake was significantly lower in patients who had high-convexity sulcal tightness. In other words, these patients had cortical volume loss like we see in Alzheimer's disease, but there was much less or even none of the tau pathology. The takeaway is, among patients who had cortical volume loss, high convexity tightness is more likely to indicate a non-tau pathology of cognitive impairment. There's an even more important takeaway message from this paper that I want to bring up before we move on to the last part of our program, and that is the question of, What's so important about distinguishing NPH from Alzheimer's disease on the basis of structural imaging? Aren't we using clinical and CSF biomarkers for enrollment in Alzheimer's trials anyways? Well, first of all, clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease are really targeting the preclinical AD patient, the cognitively intact patient who's at high risk of developing the condition later. By the time the mental disability becomes clinically apparent, the tau aggregates and the neurofibrillary tangles have overwhelmed the central nervous system, and researchers believe that there's little that can be done for these patients once the pathologic changes consume the nervous system. So we use CSF biomarkers. Why can't we just go with that? You'd think that CSF proteins like beta amyloid 42 and tau, they have a high sensitivity and specificity for predicting Alzheimer's development. They've been used in a number of clinical trials already. But the thing is, low CSF beta amyloid levels are present in Alzheimer's disease, and they are also found in patients who have NPH. Now, the NPH patient may have normal amyloid PET imaging, which would suggest that the patient does not have a developing tau pathology. But on the basis of CSF testing, with a low beta amyloid protein level, this patient may be recognized as having preclinical AD, and they could get enrolled in an AD trial, and because they don't actually have the AD pathology, they won't respond to that targeted therapeutic. This has enormous potential to confound future clinical trials if we don't consider high-convexity tight sulci as an important imaging biomarker. So, 
In conclusion, high convexity tight sulci is a highly specific marker of NPH when DASH is present, a disproportionately enlarged subarachnoid space hydrocephalus. But why? Of all parts of the cortical lamina, what is it about the parasagittal frontal and parietal cortex that keeps these gyri kissing and all the remaining gyri are spaced out? I wish I could give you an answer. Even today, we don't have a solid grasp as to why there is sulcal crowding at the convexity. Sometimes, you can see a gravitational effect on the atrophic brain, i.e. when a patient's lying down in the scanner, there appears to be a disproportionate loss of volume in the anterior frontal lobes with enlarged subarachnoid spaces in contrast to the occipital poles, which may appear relatively more full. That's just because the atrophied brain matter is being pulled down to the back of the skull by gravity. The patient's laying down. The convexity sulci, however, they rest near the vertex of the skull, and these sulci are just as tight anteriorly as they are posteriorly in patients who have high convexity tight sulci, so it's not a gravitational effect. Then could it be that some areas have more vulnerable neurons in degenerative conditions like Alzheimer disease and vasco dementia? Perhaps. In that study I referenced by Graf Radford and colleagues, the cortical thickness, which was lower in patients with high convexity tight sulci, it was not actually measured in the parasagittal frontal lobes, where you see this imaging abnormality. It was the lateral frontal and the mesial temporal lobes. So maybe these sulci and the high convexity are tighter because there's more cortical volume there than in the lateral frontal and the mesial temporal lobes. So lots of questions still remain with this, but it's still an important imaging biomarker to recognize and something you should be looking out for. And that's it for another week of the Brainwaves podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. As a reminder, Brainwaves is intended for medical education only and should not be used for routine clinical decision making. This week's episode of the Brainwaves podcast was produced by myself, Jim Siegler, out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Music for our program was courtesy of Jason Shaw, Javelinus, and Lee Rosefear. Our theme song was composed by Jimothy Dalton. Side effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeone. For more information on what was discussed in the show, as always, please take a look at the show notes for the references to the highest yield literature and the topics, and follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio, where we've posted some representative images of high convexity tight sulci. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you soon. <laughs>